0: Hello and welcome to the Memory Chapel podcast. Memory Chapel is a small, rural, non-denominational Christian church located on Vanceville Road in 84 Pennsylvania. On this podcast, we feature an edited version of our Sunday morning worship service at the chapel and the Bible teaching of Pastor David All. Thanks for joining us. And now, let's get to the worship. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is good to see you all here today. Our Father, we give thanks that we can assemble together in the name of your Son Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. We thank you that we can gather together to hear your word, to sing your praise, to make a joyful noise. Father, we pray that today as we worship you, that it might be in spirit and in truth that you would aid us in our efforts to bring honor and glory to you. That here today, your son Jesus might be exalted in our midst, that you would be honored by that, and that we would enjoy the fellowship of the spirit that you've freely given to all who call upon your name. It's in that name, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our call to worship this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 5. The prophet says, If only you would tear the heavens open and come down so that mountains would quake at your presence. I think each one of us could probably relate to that feeling. Isaiah looks at the situation of the world that he's in, and he says, God, I want you to do something if you would just split the heavens and come down and do something so that the mountains would quake at your presence just as fire kindles brushwood and fire boils water to make your name known to your enemies so that nations would tremble, at your presence. You know 2000 years ago they were wanting that to happen. They were looking for Messiah to come blazing through the heavens, to split the sky open. But that's not how he came. When you did awesome works that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. Yes, that happened at Mount Sinai at the giving of the law. They were waiting for it to happen again. From ancient times, no one has heard, no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. You welcome the one who joyfully does what is right. They remember you in your ways. But we have sinned, and you were angry. How can we be saved if we remain in our sins? Now, that's the question, isn't it? 700 years before Christ, Isaiah was asking it, how can we be saved if we remain in our sins? What would God do to answer that question? Well, we're on the right side of it. We know what God did to answer that question. His answer was the cross. We don't remain in our sins because God made him who knew no sin to become sin. For us, a sin offering for us, so that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. How can we be saved if we remain in our sins? We don't remain in our sins. God has removed our sins from us as far as the East is from the West, and we can be at peace with God. This is the word of the Lord. There in Second Samuel chapter nine, we read of how David the King showed gracious kindness to the only surviving grandson of Saul, the man named Mephibosheth. David provided for him. He raised him up and brought him to Jerusalem to live with him in the royal palace, to eat at his table every day. As with any change of address, I'm sure old Mephibosheth had a few boxes to unpack once he got settled into his new residence there in the king's home. Today, We, too, are going to unpack a few boxes as we look at the kingdom of God, the kingdom unpacked. Most everyone has unpacked something at some point in their life. A package arrives in the mail. Is it an eagerly anticipated item? Is it a surprise? What could it be? Boxes are taken down from the attic or pulled out of the closet or off the shelf in the garage. Perhaps they have sat there unopened for 11 months, that is, if they're Christmas decorations. Perhaps they've sat there for many years in long-term storage. What's inside? We might remember some of it, but when we open the boxes, we find things that we had quite forgotten about, maybe toys that we or our children played with decades ago, and the memories come flooding back. There's almost always a certain amount of excitement that can come with opening and unpacking things, especially things that are full of surprises. It seems like every time we turn a page in the gospel accounts, we find Jesus unpacking ideas and concepts for his disciples, teaching them surprising and unexpected things, things about the Father, things about himself, things about the kingdom of God. The disciples are constantly having their minds blown and their assumptions challenged. This morning, we turn back to the supper that Jesus shared with his students earlier on the night that he was arrested. It was an occasion where the teacher was, he was cramming in all of the lessons that he could in those final minutes before the big test. We begin by looking at one of those lessons which had to do with the kingdom of God. Jesus had taught his students many things about the kingdom of God and its tie to the promise of God to give his spirit to his people and to dwell forever with his people through his spirit. But now, Jesus reveals something to them that causes quite a stir. And if you want to look at the scripture, it's Luke 22, and it's printed for you on the inside of your bulletins. Luke 22, beginning in verse 21. Sitting there at the table with his disciples, Jesus says, But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. Jesus' revelation to his students that one of their own number would be the instrumental means whereby Jesus would be betrayed into the hands of his enemies, it had been a shocking revelation. But notice their response. They descended into disputing and arguing over who would be the one that would do this heinous thing. And ironically, their dispute over who would be the rat flowed right into an argument that they had had on other occasions. Let's look at it in the next verse, verse 24. Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. First they wanted to know who was going to be the traitor. Now they want to know who's going to be the greatest. They started by arguing over who the rat would be. Then they took up arguing over who the goat would be. Now, if you're over a certain age like me, you may need to have this expression explained to you. When I was a boy, if you called someone the GOAT, that wasn't a good thing. The GOAT was the one who in the bottom of the ninth inning with two outs and bases loaded got struck out without even swinging at the pitch. That was the GOAT. Fumbling the football at the goal line when the game hung in the balance. That was the GOAT. It's not like that today. Today, people like the word goat. And that's because they use it as an acronym. Each letter stands for a word goat, G O A T, greatest of all time. And that's what the disciples began to argue about. They wanted to know who's going to be the greatest disciple of all time. First, they wanted to know who the rat was going to be, then, they wanted to know who the goat was going to be. Jesus addressed their argument. By correcting their misperception about what the kingdom of God was like. And this provides us with our first bit of unpacking here today. Picking up in verse 25. Jesus said to them, the kings of the nations of mankind lorded over them. And those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. In other words, I'm going to boss you around and you're going to tell me what a nice guy I am. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what the the kings and the leaders of the nations do. They boss everyone else around and insist on being called nice guys for it. But Jesus says, It's not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, whoever leads, like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table that's the greater? But I, I myself am among you as the one who serves. Jesus says, if you want to know what this looks like, just look no further than me. I'm providing the example. I'm not being served. I'm the one with the towel tied around my waist, washing feet here tonight. I'm doing the job of the lowest servant Verse 28, you are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, in this short passage, we're going to find four boxes that we're going to unpack here today. Four boxes that teach us about the kingdom of God. Let's unpack the first one. The kingdom of God is and will remain a kingdom founded upon a radical concept. Servant leadership. Radical means at the very root. At its very root, the kingdom of God is a servant leader organization, and that's box number one. Just as Jesus came not to be served, but to serve others by initiating a new arrangement whereby men, women, boys, and girls may draw near to the Father through faithful, confident trust in the work of Jesus to make them clean and acceptable and right with God. So too, we, his followers, are called to serve one another. Servant leadership. The students have wanted to argue over who was the greatest, the most important, But Jesus corrects their thinking by turning it on its head. Want to be great in my kingdom? Take the lowest job and faithfully carry it out in selfless love for others, just like I have done. That's how you'll be great in my kingdom. Serve one another. But we continue to unpack. Box number two, Jesus declared that he had bestowed a kingdom on his apostles just as the Father had bestowed a kingdom on him. They would eat and drink at his table in his kingdom. What does that mean? The eating and drinking at Christ's table in his kingdom. It means that there would be close, ongoing fellowship between Christ and those who are his In recent weeks, we looked at Ezekiel's prophecy from Ezekiel 37 about the new arrangement. God's dwelling would be with his people. His most holy place, his dwelling place, would be among his people. God's spirit would take up residence in a new temple, a temple not made with brick and mortar, not made with hands. It would be a temple comprised of living stones, God's Spirit would dwell within the people who belong to God, the body of Christ. Jesus' picture of eating and drinking at his table in his kingdom, the intimate act of sharing a meal in a shared dwelling, this pictures the close relationship, the fellowship, the intimacy that is present in the kingdom of God. Earlier today in the children's sermon, We heard a wonderful story that provided a beautiful picture of that. The grandson of the first king of Israel, Mephibosheth, received kindness and mercy and love at the hands of David, the king of Israel. And how did David show that? He brought him into his home. He said, you're going to eat at my table every day. I'm giving you back everything that belonged to your grandfather, but you're not going to live apart from me. You're going to live with me. And we're going to share our meals together every day. That's the picture of what God desires to have with his people. God isn't way up there somewhere, and we're way apart from him. God has brought us close, God has entered into our race. God dwells in the midst of his people. That's what the picture of eating and drinking in the kingdom of God is all about. And speaking of eating and drinking as it relates to the kingdom of God, there's something more that we can learn about this kingdom by considering food and drink. And this leads us to our third box, but we're going to have to go to another passage to unpack this one. Box number three, most of us have this natural tendency to try to work out formulas for righteousness. At our core, we are legal. And to be quite honest, a lot of times, well-intending preachers have had something to do with this by making certain sins the repeated targets of their preaching. Now, I don't want to be too hard on the preachers, not just because I am one, but because a pastor is just another word for shepherd. And a shepherd has to guard and protect the flock of Christ. Sins can be like wolves and bears and coyotes and mountain lions. The shepherd has to protect the flock and sometimes has to go out and fight against the predators that are looking to eat up the sheep. So there are times a preacher has to preach and warn and rail against certain sins that threaten to destroy the soul. I get that, and you should too. But sometimes all of that railing, it can leave the listener with the unintended impression that righteousness is a formula that can be worked out on our own by doing these certain things and abstaining from those other things, and then we will be righteous. And this way of thinking is not much different today than it was 2,000 years ago when religious Jews who had come to faith in Jesus Christ tried to take their misguided understanding of the law that they had known under the old arrangement and apply it to the new arrangement. Jesus said that sort of thing wouldn't work. He said, you can't put new wine into old wineskins because the wine will swell and burst the skins and both will be lost. But they were trying. They were trying to take the new life in Christ and plug it into the old arrangement of the old covenant And it led to contentious situations where they were arguing against other Christians. They were judging other Christians on a variety of matters. Things like, what day should we worship? That's not really so ancient and strange. We have people today who argue over such things. What day should we worship? Which foods are right to eat and which ones aren't? Again, we still have people today who argue about that kind of stuff, don't we? They were arguing about it back then. They were judging each other. Some, because of their upbringing under the old covenant, they had a weak conscience when it came to these matters. And they were being very judgmental in their attitudes towards their brothers and sisters. Others who didn't have that upbringing, well, they had stronger consciences about these matters. But they weren't living right either. They were using their liberty in Christ to push back at their weaker brothers and sisters in a way that was unloving. All of this prompted Jesus' apostle Paul to explain something about the kingdom of God that we absolutely must understand. And this is the passage that we turn to to unpack this third box. Romans 14, 17. Romans 14, 17, Paul is writing to a church that is divided, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, and they are doing this. They're butting heads with each other. The, the, the Jewish Christians, they are being very judgmental in their attitudes about which day to worship on and which foods to eat. And the Gentile Christians, they're pushing back and not being very loving and understanding. What does Paul have to say? Romans 14, 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, it's righteousness, it's peace, and it's joy in the Holy Spirit. And if you're trying to reduce it to a set formula that concerns things like what to eat and what to drink and what day to worship on, you're missing the kingdom of God because that's not what it's about. In Christ, we are not bound to the ceremonial ritual laws of the old arrangement. Under the old arrangement, people had to be concerned about dietary restrictions and such, food and drink. But we're free from such things. Free, but never to use our freedom to wound the conscience of a weaker brother or sister who is struggling. In another place, Paul said, If my eating meat is going to cause my brother with a weak conscience to stumble and sin and fall, I'll never eat meat again. I'm not going to use my freedom in Christ to destroy the soul of a brother or sister. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking It's not about religious rituals and prescriptive and prohibitive laws. If we make it into that, then we've missed it. It's not a formula that we can work out by saying, as long as you don't smoke and chew or run with girls who do. And if we do that sort of thing, we've missed it. The kingdom of God, also known as living in the spirit, It's not about righteousness attained through rule-keeping and condemning those who don't keep all of the rules that we have listed out on our paper. Neither is it about using our freedom in Christ to do as we please when what we should be doing is using our freedom to do as Christ is pleased and to serve one another in love. If we make it, about doing what pleases us, then again, we've missed it. If anyone had the right to do as he pleased, it was Christ Jesus. And he didn't do it. He came not to be served, but to serve and to do the will of his Father. No, the kingdom of God, it's not about rules and rituals. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God Is about being in Christ through faithful, loyal, confident trust that he and he alone is the way through which you can draw near to the living God. It's about the new arrangement that he has made through his body and blood as a sacrifice for our sins. Only in him can we be righteous, right with God, not through observance of a list of rules and rituals, but through his own righteousness applied to our account. Only in him can we have peace with God who reconciled us to himself through the sacrifice of Jesus. Only in him can we know true joy as we enter the spirit, as we encounter the spirit of the living God in our midst, the God who desires to make his dwelling with humanity as in a living temple. He is our God. We are his people. And now we come to our fourth and final box today. Right after telling his apostles that they would sit at his table, eating and drinking with him in his kingdom, Jesus unpacks this startling surprise. He says, and you will sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Sharing his table, that was a promise of community and dwelling. He was promising and inviting them to enjoy his presence as he would live with them. But this next promise, it goes even further than that. In my kingdom, you will not only have a place to live. You will not only share my table, the place of community and fellowship. In my kingdom, you will also share my throne. You will rule with me. This is astonishing. The living God desires to not only redeem his fallen creatures but he desires to serve them. The living God not only desires to dwell with his redeemed people, but he desires to reign with them. Let that sink in. Maybe at this point you're asking yourself, yes, but these promises, were they not intended specifically for Jesus' 12 apostles? If you found yourself asking this question, I can only say good job because that's an excellent question. That is the mark of a good reader of Scripture. Does this apply to me personally or was it meant for the original audience? Good question. And we can avoid many wrong interpretations if we'll just ask that simple question when we read the Scriptures. But to answer that question, yes, Jesus was addressing his apostles specifically, and he made a specific promise to them. However, it's a big however. It's going to make me very happy to show you from other places in the scriptures that we who have believed through the testimony of Jesus' apostles are caught up and included in these promises. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, Paul, writing to Gentile believers, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We, too, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. Mephibosheth said, who am I? I'm a dead dog. David raised him up. We say, who are we? We're dead in trespasses and sins. God says, I took care of that. Let me raise you up. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up. Hear this, he raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavens, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That was a mouthful of a passage, but the thing that I want you to catch and hold on to, that he has raised us up in him and has seated us in Christ in the heavens. We have been raised with Christ and we've been seated with Christ. Where? In the heavens. Seated with Christ on his throne. Where is that? At the right hand of the Father. Don't miss the power of this statement. When we were utterly unable to bridge the gap that separated us from God, God bridged that gap through the person of his Son. How? This is amazing. He joined himself to humanity. Think of it. The unchangeable living God changed. He became human through the second person of the Trinity, the Son, and he forever joined himself to the human race. And today, right now, there is a man that sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling the nations of humanity, and he shares his throne with those whom he calls brother and sister. And this is powerful stuff. Right there in a nutshell, if you ever need to know what is the defining difference between the God that the Christian worships and calls Father and the God that the Muslim worships, There it is right there. The God that the Jew worships outside of Christ, right there is the difference. Judaism and Islam both say that God is unchangeable. He cannot change. There's never any changing with him. The Christian understands that the second person of the Trinity did change. The son stepped down. He bridged the gap and he forever joined himself to the human race. He became a man. And today that man sits at the right hand of the Father. That is the core distinction that separates Christianity from everything else. The unchangeable one chose to change. Maybe we need more convincing. Let's look at two promises that Jesus made to first century believers in the letters to the churches of Asia that he gave to his disciple John on the Isle of Patmos. Let's see what he promises in two places here, Revelation 2, verses 26 through 27, and Revelation three twenty one. Revelation 2, 26 through 27, Jesus says, The one who conquers, the believer who conquers and keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. Revelation 3:21 To the one who conquers to the believer who conquers and overcomes I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne Look at it Jesus promises believers like you and me that if they conquer that is if they remain faithful to him until the very end because that's how you conquer That he will share his very own throne where he reigns. Where he exercises his authority over the nations of mankind, he will share it with those who belong to him. This really is astonishing stuff. And now, here is something that is really quite interesting. In the past, you've heard me talk about something that I refer to as the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, it's the idea that's found in a number of places throughout the Hebrew scriptures that the Lord had a divine council which he presided over. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 expresses the idea that there was a time when the nations of humanity were divided and placed under the oversight of certain supernatural created beings. The Hebrew way of speaking about these beings was to call them sons of God, not in the sense that Jesus is the unique, only begotten son of God, but sons of God, we would probably call them angels. But they were supernatural beings created by the Lord, and they were given oversight of the nations of mankind. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance and divided the human race, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the people of Israel. Actually, the better translation is according to the number of the sons of God the angels. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob or Israel, his own inheritance. You've heard me talk about it before. God divided the nations of humanity at the Tower of Babel. He separated the languages, but he held on to one slice of humanity for himself. The nation of Israel would fall under his direct management and governance. The rest of the nations were appointed underneath the leadership and oversight of this divine council. This divine assembly or divine council, which we also find referred to in Psalm 89, was appointed to oversee the nations of mankind. But it seems that instead of leading the nations into the knowledge of the one true living God, the members of this council led the nations into further darkness, idolatry, and immorality. And for this reason, in Psalm 82, another place where it's mentioned, we see the Lord pronouncing judgment upon these rebellious council members. He said, I called you gods, but you're going to die like men. You can look it up for yourself in Psalm 82. Why do I bother to bring this up right now, though? I mention it because there's a connection to what we have just unpacked from our fourth box. The living God, as I said, he bridged the gap between us and him in the person of his son, who has invited us to his table to share that place of intimate communal dwelling, as well as to share in his throne where we are seated with him in the heavens, the place from which he rules over the nations of humanity. Are you guessing what he did? Are you making the connection yet? He has created a reconstituted divine council. He judged the old one for its rebellion. He said, I, I, I told you you were gods, but you're going to die like mere mortals. But now, having bridged the gap into humanity, raised us up to himself, raised us to his throne, he has reconstituted the divine council. Who's it made up of? It's comprised of the sons of men that he has redeemed. He has raised us up to his throne with authority over the nations. Paul even revealed that redeemed humans will judge angels. 1 Corinthians 6.3, Paul was confronting the Corinthian believers because they were taking each other to court over frivolous lawsuits. And he says, don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more should we be able to take care of the small matters of life? Unlike the previous council, which failed through the rebellion of the members and was judged, this new council comprised of redeemed humanity, it will stand. Why? Because its members are bound to the Lord by love, redemption, salvation, and the indwelling presence of the Lord's own spirit. Emmanuel, it means God with us. Emmanuel entered into humanity, permanently joining himself to our fallen race. But he didn't leave us fallen. He raised us up to his throne. And no wonder the Apostle Paul exclaims in Romans eleven thirty three through 36, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We've unpacked four boxes today. Let's review them quickly as, as it relates to the kingdom of God. The first box, the kingdom of God is founded upon radical servant leadership. Do we aspire to greatness? We must take the path of humility and service to our brothers and sisters, just as our Lord did. Second box, the kingdom of God involves communal fellowship with our Lord and with each other. He invites us to sit at his table, to eat and drink with him. The living God desires intimate fellowship with his redeemed creatures. He doesn't merely have them over for dinner. He dwells with them forever. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. The third box, the kingdom of God is not law-based. It's not founded upon rules or rituals. It's not concerned with those things, things like food and drink. No, it's about righteousness in the Holy Spirit. It's about peace in the Holy Spirit. It's about joy in the Holy Spirit. And did you catch the key phrase? In the Holy Spirit. It's all based on the indwelling presence of the God who sanctifies and forever dwells with his redeemed people. That's what the kingdom of God is about. It's about the dwelling place of God with his people. It's about the rule and reign of God with his people. And that led us to our fourth box. The kingdom of God involves redeemed humanity ruling and reigning with Christ Jesus. The living God forever joined himself to his creatures so that his creatures could be forever joined to him by the cords of love, redemption, salvation, and his indwelling spirit. Christ invites us to conquer. How? Through faithfulness to him. And by conquering to share his throne, even as he conquered and shares his father's throne. Have we unpacked enough today to get you excited about the kingdom of God? Excited about what God in Christ Jesus has done? Excited about what more lies in store? I don't know what this stuff looks like on the other side, in the unseen realm. But I know this, there is a man the second person of the Trinity, the son of God who forever joined himself to our race. And now this man sits at the right hand of the father and he rules over the kingdoms of this world. They belong to him. And he shares his throne with his redeemed people. I don't know what that looks like on the other side, but I'm excited about it. It's interesting. Romans eight thirty one through 32 reads, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? God did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? As it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. It's exciting stuff. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these things that your son has revealed to us by his word, through your spirit. We thank you for these boxes that we have had the opportunity to unpack today. We thank you for the kingdom that you've bestowed upon us, a kingdom where you intend to fellowship and dwell with your people forever, sitting at the table, eating and drinking, sharing your throne. These things are too great for us. We can't really even comprehend What all is involved in it? Oh, but Father, we are excited to learn. We are excited to find out. Thank you for bridging that gap, joining yourself to us so that we might forever be joined to you, raising us up, giving us life, sharing your kingdom with us. May none of us fall short to enter into it through faith in Christ, we pray in his name. Amen he is preparing us as living stones built into a temple wherein his spirit dwells forever it's an amazing thing and that is what the kingdom of god is all about and may the grace and peace of god our father and the lord jesus christ and the fellowship of the spirit that he's freely given to all who call upon his name be with you today this week and forever amen Thank you for having tuned in with us today. We hope you found the time in worship and the Word to be encouraging, challenging, and strengthening. If so, we'd love to hear from you. We realize there are so many ways you could spend your time. We're glad you chose to spend it with us in worship and the Word. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all today, this week, and forever.